welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about the Adoption and Foster Care Home Study, what to expect and how to prepare. This is a topic we get, as you would imagine, a lot of questions about. It is uh, front and center on almost everyone's mind who is thinking about either foster care or adoption. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. One thing that we um, talk a lot about, especially with adopting from foster care or fostering, um, not that there's not stresses from infant adoption, but um, those tend to be look a little different at times. But one of the things we talk about is, again, we're adding a lot of stress to your home. So if you have a mental health condition that is exacerbated by stress, then we want to make sure that we're not setting you up for a decline in your own mental health because then you're not going to be able to parent this child the most effectively. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Foster Care Education and Support Nonprofit. This show, I'm Dawn Davenport, I should say, and uh, I'm the director of Creating a Family, and you can find us and every one of our resources online at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten by the Jockey Bing Family Foundation. Their mission is to strengthen adoptive families through post-adoption services. Their founder, Deborah Waller, who is the chairman and CEO of Jockey International, says, one failed adoption is one too many, and all I can say is amen. You can support their mission by buying a bear or a blanket at jockeybeingfamily.com, and we thank them for their support. Today, we're going to be talking about the adoption and foster care home study process. But before we do that, I want to let you know that all the resources at Creating a Family, including this show, would not happen without the generous support of our partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those who are struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful partners include Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and they also do international kinship adoptions. And we thank them for their support. Today we're going to be talking about the Adoption and Foster Care Home Study, what to expect and how to prepare. Uh, this is a topic that uh, almost every adopted, adopted and adoption and foster care family thinks about and worries about, particularly at the beginning. So we hope to answer all of your questions today in this interview. We are going to be talking with Rebecca Hill. She is a social worker and the clinical therapist in adoption services at SAFI. We will also be talking with Jeanette Quick. She has her Master's of Divinity, and she is the Home Study Service Coordinator at Hopscotch Adoptions. Welcome, both Jeanette and Rebecca, and we thank you so much for talking with us today about the Adoption Home Study. Uh, Rebecca, let me start with you, and we'll start with the most general, and that is, what is an Adoption Home Study, and, and do you have to do one? Uh, and, and then we'll also talk about what is, in fact, you can answer both, what is the Adoption Home Study, what is a foster care home study, and, and do, are we required to do them? Hi. The the short answer is yes, they're required. Um, they are. A, there's two pieces to them. There's the background checks, which are um, required for safety reasons, obviously, and then there's also um, 
information about the family so that we can make the best match possible. And I think that both of those are true for foster care and uh, adoption. Um, and then generally speaking, so the home study, you asked kind of what it is. The home study is, it is those background checks, it is the medical reports, it is um, references and financial forms, it is paperwork, but it's also an interview with the family and a way to get to know them and their histories and why they're choosing to go down this route, whether that's foster care or adoption. Yeah, we often tell people that the, pers- the purpose of the either of a home study in general, either for adoption or foster care, is to gather information about the family through requests for documents, as you mentioned, or interviews. Another purpose is to evaluate the prospective family's home for safety, security, and overall, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's health, overall health. And that's usually done through home visits. And then a part that is often overlooked, but uh, as you might imagine, something that as the national uh, foster and adoption education and support nonprofit we care about, and that is to better educate and prepare families for adoption or fostering. And that's usually done through required training, uh, interviews, and things such as that. We have a question from Zoe. She says she wants to know, she says we don't know what type of adoption we will do. Can we get one home study and then decide whether to adopt a baby privately or from foster care? And we are still thinking about international adoption. Jeanette, can you can you do a, a, a one-shop, uh, does it all, one-stop does it all type of home study where you can get one home study and then apply it to any type of adoption? Is that possible? Um, unfortunately, it's not possible. Um, an international home study, and I hate that for the family because you know that yeah. it's a lot of time and money and energy that they're putting into this. Um, I think the best route is to is to really examine what type of adoption they want to pursue and then put their energy in that direction. Um, an international home study would be so many more requirements. Um, and it is specific because in our studies we talk about the motivation to adopt specifically from that country. And so it assumes that the family has already chosen um, and is interested in, you know, adopting from whatever country that might be and why. So a foster yeah. care study would look very different um, and need to meet state requirements. Um, an international home study would need to meet state requirements and additional, additionally meet, you know, USCIS, immigration, U.S. requirements, and that the country they're wanting to adopt from um, has their own requirements as well. Exactly. And, and it's part of the home study you are approved to adopt a specific age child, type child, special needs. And so that you need to know if you're adopting Mm -hmm. a domestic infant, that would be quite different from a child, you know, a 15-year-old that you're thinking of adopting from a foreign country. So so unfortunately, the answer is okay. Well, and a recommendation, right, a recommendation for that family would be maybe talk to an agency that does all three so that they can at least get started with that agency and maybe talk to someone who has experience in the different types of adoption, and that might help direct them um, and answer some of those questions that they're they're asking. Yeah, great suggestion. All right, then, um, Rebecca, when in the adoption or the fostering process is the home study usually done? So for foster care, we typically do the home study. Um, they've started some of the training, but maybe not. They haven't typically finished all of the training, but they've generally done some of that pre-service training so that we can 
just they have some time to go through the training and decide if this is the best option for them um, and kind of have some of that education piece before we're really asking them what they're open to and, again, thinking about a match. Um, for the adoption, if we're talking about domestic infant, um, it would be it, – it kind of depends on what agency they're using. So mm-hmm. for some agencies, if they're using a matching agency um, and then getting a home study done separately – So if they come to us for an adoption home study, we do not do the matching piece for domestic infant. Um, So typically they might do that if they're matching agencies in another state. Most of the time they need to have their home study done before they can start that process with the matching agency. However, if they're doing that, if they're working with an agency that does all of the pieces, that may be done, again, alongside training um, but generally it's done at the beginning or within that first section of things. And Jeanette, for international, uh, I know the home study is a part of the paperwork, the dossier that's going to be submitted to the, uh, to the country. Um, so when in the process, uh, the international adoption process, is the home study usually done? It's usually done first. Um, as a part of the dossier, it has to, the, the dossier includes the completed home study, but also the USCIS approval of the home study. And so that um, that generally takes three months to do the home study, three months for USCIS approval, and then that goes into the dossier. Um, and sometimes people do those two concurrently. They're putting together all of their paperwork. Um, but the home study really is um, an evaluation of the family and, and the child that they're best prepared to parent. And so it wouldn't make sense to do it in a backward sense. Um, the social worker would be talking about, you know, not just their motivation, but their education and preparedness, especially if they're adopting um, a special needs child. So um, it, we, we generally do it first. Gotcha. Um, and, and, and you were addressing how long it usually takes, which I was thankful. Um, let's go ahead, Rebecca, and tell us about the foster care home study and the domestic infant. About how long does it take to do? And I realize that there's a lot of factors, not the least of which is how prompt the adoptive families are in getting paperwork and requests and setting up how easy they are to set up meetings with. Mm-hmm. However, just in general, about how long does it take, assuming you've got a family that's that's wanting to get it done relatively quickly, to do a foster, <clears throat> excuse me, a foster uh, care home study? You hit the nail on the head. It really is about how quickly the family is returning things, but generally we're, it takes about 90 to 120 days, um, depending, again, on some of those factors. But generally speaking, even with a very motivated family, it's taking about 90 to 120 days. Gotcha. Okay. So that's important to, to know when, when you're beginning. That's why. All right. We... Um, the information, and, and Rebecca alluded to this uh, at the very beginning, um, uh, the, the type of information that prospective adoptive or foster families are asked to provide or gener- our information on is generally <clears throat> can be summarized in about five ways. One, a criminal background check. Two, medical history. Three, some type of statements of income and assets. Four, autobiographical information, statements, written written statements, and then five, references. So we're going to break those down <clears throat> and talk about um, all five of those. Let's start with the, uh, the, the background checks, the criminal history background checks. And, uh, and I'd like to throw the question out to, I'm going to uh, throw the question out to one of you, but then 
uh, Rebecca is really handling more of the foster and domestic infant, and Jeanette is handling more of the international. And where there's a difference, please chime in and let us know. All right, Jeanette, for criminal history, what type of criminal history for adoptive parents uh, would preclude adoption or cause problems? Um, any type of felony, usually, um, although that's not always the case. Um, we've had a family who had a history in this far past of a, a felony, and he was still able to be approved. Um, generally, any type of domestic violence, uh, child abuse, uh, those are the types of things that would stop a family um, from being able to adopt. Uh, for obvious reasons. Um, the clearances that we require for international would be all of their state clearances. So, for example, I'm in the state of North Carolina, so we require a local a state F a state Bureau of Investigation, an FBI report, as well as uh, North Carolina child abuse. And then they're required um, to, to tell us every country and state they've lived in since the age of 18, even if it was just, you know, for a brief period of time. Um, and we run child abuse clearances for each of those states and countries. Um, and that's one of the things that sometimes can delay a family um, is if, you know, they, they've forgotten to list a place that, you know, they did a summer internship for school or, you know, a, a place where they were stationed overseas. Um, having all of that information at the very beginning is super helpful because some clearances take six weeks to come back. And so if you find out at the last minute that, oh, they lived in Texas, that clearance takes 45 days. And so we always put those at the very, very beginning so that as we're doing the education and finding those other uh, five pieces that you listed, that the clearances are being run. Okay. Excellent. And um, good advice uh, to do it at the beginning because you don't know. And, 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 and honestly, fingerprints and fingerprinting will be required as part of the, the federal, at least, and sometimes for the state. And honestly, <clears throat> Sometimes your fingerprints get sent back for no reason that you know of, and they say they can't be read or they're not clear enough or whatever. So you should right. assume that um, allow time um, for for the unexpected. Rebecca, um, anything different that would be? Let's start with domestic infant. Um, are all those same um, uh, background checks done for domestic infant adoption? Yes, um, and for foster care. And the only thing that I would add is that if they have, um, I believe it's three or more misdemeanors, that can also um, cause them to not be considered qualified, um, or they could be considered kind of pending and need a waiver from the state. All right, we have a question, and let me read that one. It, it would fit right in with there. She says, my husband had, TD, had two DUIs when he was in college. He also may have had a charge for assault because of a bar fight. He has since cleaned up his act and has never had another run-in with the police. Will that be a problem if he want to adopt a child? Rebecca, thoughts on that? She didn't tell me what type of adoption she was. She did not include that information, nor did she include how far in the past. Um, obviously, it's, he's not in college now, is all we know. So um, what are your thoughts on that, Rebecca? I think there's a couple of things. One is that um, as far as the actual background check goes, um, again, they, it, there are certain things that the system screens for. Um, so if it was, again, those three misdemeanors, it may come back, but we can apply for a waiver um, if that's the case. I think the big thing that we look at is how long ago did those things happen, as you mentioned. If, 
are they just out of college and that was two years ago or were they out of college for 10 years and you know mm-hmm. there's they're very far removed from that uh, and that's that's part of what we'll do but and we'll look at and again if we have to apply for a waiver we're going to have that conversation before we can do that but if that doesn't it doesn't um make it not considered not qualified on the actual background check it's still something that we're going to talk about um when we see those charges and again how far removed so they were duis how much does he drink now how what does that look like? Did he, was it um, because he was in college and that was kind of the lifestyle of college or did he have a drinking problem? So we're really going to dive into that in the home study interviews. Um, but as far as being an automatic, no, I don't think that that's the case. I think it's something that we'll look at with them, depending okay. on the time frame. You know, one of the questions we often get was, I mean, people are often ashamed of these things in their past and don't, and, and sometimes, honestly, they've either forgotten or not known that a, a police report was filed. They I mean they remember the incident, but they don't remember. Or it happened when they were, and I don't know, and I think this depends on the state, below a certain age, and they were told that the record was expunged. Jeanette, uh, what shows up when you run these checks? Um, is it, it any arrest? If it's been, if your record has been, if does it only when you've been charged? If you have. If the record has been expunged, uh, will that show up? How, how do you know what's going to show up? Um, so for an international adoption, there's something called the duty of candor and the duty of disclosure, which is a really important element. And you're basically promising that you are telling them the truth and disclosing everything. And one of the specific questions is, have you ever been arrested, even if it was a past juvenile um in, you know, before you're 18, if it's been expunged, all of those things. So no matter what, we ask families to disclose. And the way I approach it with families is to say, if there's something you're worried about, let me help you figure out how to make this work. We're all human, and we've all made mistakes. And so if this, you know, gentleman in college made mistakes, he's, you know, and exactly what um, Rebecca mentioned is talking about, you know, history of alcohol and what that's looked like it doesn't exclude someone from adoption. I mean, this man could be a fantastic parent. Um, And so it's a whole list of things that we're looking at in the home study, and that's just one piece of it. And so for that, for an international adoption, what the family would be required to do is to, um, he would write a letter about what happened, when, what led to it, what he's learned, um, and attach to that a certified copy of the court records. Um, And that's all that's required. So if he has a DUI in his past or if anyone listening has, you know, some history like that, whether it was burglary or or something, don't let that stop you from pursuing your dream of adoption. Just talk to your social worker or the agency and be fully honest and say this is, these are the things that are, um, that will show up. How do we address it? Yeah, and I would say that goes for all types of adoption and foster care. You should, if you aren't certain, (laughs) disclose it. If you are certain, disclose it. Your uh, social worker is somebody who's on your side and you uh, you yeah. need to use them to help you figure out how best to uh, to approach it. So that's um, I think that's the that's the general rule of thumb regardless. All right, let's move on to medical history. All right, Jeanette, what type of medical history for adoptive parents will be a problem for adopting? Uh, that really depends on the country that they're adopting from. 
and so um, depending and so that would be something that they would the adoptive parents would want to talk to the agency who's doing the country program that they're working with. Uh, for example, um, history of cancer in the Ukraine is a problem. Um, Ukraine has a list of things that aren't allowed for adoptive parents. Um, in China, they have a BMI requirement of nothing above 40. And so each country has very specific medical guidelines. Um, mm -hmm. And when you talk to a, an adoption agency, you're trying to figure out you know, where you want to adopt from. Disclosing your medical history helps to narrow down the list of possibilities. Um, age is also, I know that's not medical, but um, yeah. age requirements are, are, you know, for certain countries. Um, and so I would say when you fill out that medical form, um, that's part of your application process, and they would be able to best direct you. Okay. Uh, now, uh, Rebecca, let's talk about uh, domestic infant and then talk about foster. Uh, medical issues, medical histories, uh, uh, what is problematic for domestic infant and for foster care? I think the big thing that we're looking for is are you able to care for this child um, and are you going to be able to care for this child ongoing? So, again, some of those I don't want to say bigger, but bigger, uh, more especially um, life-threatening issues, obviously those are going to be something that we're really going to have to consider. Um, but even some of the smaller things, or what seems smaller, we're going to talk about, um, by no means are we going to say no because you have high blood pressure, but we're going to talk about, hey, we're going to add a lot of stress in your home potentially. Um, and so how are you going to manage that? How has that been going? Um, if you have a, a diagnosis that is well um, well medicated and you feel you're, it doesn't affect your daily life, um, we're going to take that into consideration versus someone who is still kind of trying to figure that out or who um, has needs additional supports themselves because of their health. So that's mm -hmm. kind of what we're looking at overall is how are, able are you to take care of this child and how... Um, will you be able to take care for them in the future? So well, I don't Becca, necessarily do have, have a specific list, one or the other. Yeah, whereas in international, there is a often countries will have a Correct. specific list. Um, and they also Rebecca, have mental have, health. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come I'll hold that one because I'm going to come back to mental health. I'm glad you raised that because yes, mental health. I'm I'm separating that just uh, for for a reason here. Um, do you, Rebecca, do you have to have a current physical? Uh, yes, that uh, is part uh, of the paperwork that will. Um, ask you to complete is to have a current physical and have a doctor sign off, and that's for anyone that lives in the home. Okay, so what if you don't have a doctor? A lot of people don't have a primary care doctor. Uh, they go to urgent care or minute clinic or something if something happens, and they just don't have a, uh, they don't go in for regular physicals and, and things such as that. So what happens then? Can you go to a – do you have to have an established relationship with this doctor? Can you go to a urgent care type or minute clinic type of place? And, and honestly, it's hard to get in. Uh, if you don't have a regularly established doctor, if you're going in as a new patient and, and usually have like a new patient physical requirement, sometimes you have to wait months and months to, to get an appointment depending on where you live. So um, um, can you go to urgent care, I guess, is the, is the bottom clinic, to, I mean, bottom question this we would prefer obviously someone who knows you and can answer to your health history but you can go to a um, clinic if 
especially if you don't have conditions that you're being treated for. So if you mm-hmm. have a doctor who is regularly prescribing you medication, we would prefer that that doctor be the one to speak to your health um, mm-hmm. because they're the ones that are going to have the most information about how that health or how that condition is going to affect your ability to parent. Um, if you don't have any conditions, you don't have any medication, um, and you don't have a primary care physician, you can go to a clinic. Again, I, I don't know that that's that much different than going to a new doctor who still doesn't have that history of information right, about yeah. you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Now, Jeanette, we are going to turn now to mental health diagnoses or mental health uh, conditions. Um, let's start with international because that one is, is it's often more problematic depending on the country you're looking at. So let's talk a little about uh, mental health and what type of records in the home study are you going to need to, uh, to provide about your mental health if you have a diagnosis? Uh, mental health is one of those those things that it's becoming less stigmatized, I think, in the United States. Um, And so when you're adopting internationally, you need to take into account what the other country, how the other country views mental health. Um, And so a history of depression um, can be problematic for some countries and not in others. Um, And so while, you know, we may think and the doctor might agree that you're perfectly able to parent, it's also up to the sending country to decide what's best for their in quotes, children. Um, Mm -hmm. And so just like um, Rebecca said, we require that medical form. It can be from anyone. It can be from a primary care doctor that you've known for 20 years or a newly established doctor. If you're taking any type of medicines um, or have a condition that's being treated, we ask for an additional medical form about that condition, so hypertension, um, depression. And then what we work with in the home study is to word it in such a way that it's honest and truthful and at the same time takes into account the cultural translation. Um, So situational depression versus major depression. Um, Mm -hmm. If a doctor says that this is situational, then that is what we put in the report. Um, And that, I think, sometimes helps families to know because I think most people, um, if you're, you know, have ever gone through anything traumatic in your life, it's appropriate to seek counseling. It's appropriate to seek those supports. And so there's, we don't want anything to penalize a family for doing that. Um, and at the same time, you know, we need to fully disclose, you know, the, the current health. And, and also, like Rebecca said, that goes for children as well as adults, any household member. Um, and so, I, you know, hopefully families that have children have a pediatrician and they, they don't take their children to urgent care for routine medical. Um, and so we just require a simple letter from their pediatrician stating that, you know, they're up to date on vaccinations, um, in good health. And um, I think the other kind of key term is free of communicable diseases, and that's all that's needed for children. Okay, anything different, and I, I suspect it is different, uh, in particular I think domestic infant has less stigmatization about mental health uh, because it's, again, here in the U.S., but I'll, uh, Rebecca, uh, any issue, uh, let's, talk, let's discuss mental health uh, in, in context of adopting domestic infant or adopting from foster care or becoming a foster parent. Yes, I would say that there is much more room. Um, Again, I kind of see things as a spectrum. And so I think there's much more room on that spectrum to say, yes, you can be a great parent, um, you know, including these things. 
I think what we look at, again, kind of like the medical issues, is how how does that condition affect your ability to parent? Right now, how does that affect your ability to parent potentially in the future? So one thing that we um, talk a lot about, especially with adopting from foster care or fostering, um, not that there's not stresses from infant adoption, but um, those tend to be look a little different at times. But one of the things we talk about is, again, we're adding a lot of stress to your home. So if you have a mental health condition that is exacerbated by stress, then we want to make sure that we're not setting you up for a decline in your own mental health because then you're not going to be able to parent this child the most effectively. Um, and and so that's something that we've honestly had to have conversations with people is that, hey, you might really be a good parent, but all the things that you're already doing to take care of yourself, now we're going to ask you to do all of those things for a child in addition, and that sounds like a lot and maybe too much. Yeah. Um, and the idea that their mental health, the child's mental health could um, be a trigger for your for the adopting parents' mental health or the fostering parents' mental health, mm-hmm. um, and the same thing kind of goes for trauma in, in that way too. But and so kind of making sure that um, we are doing some education about what what we're what what you're signing up for, um, and mm-hmm. how does that affect the other the big things that we're looking for are how does again how does it affect your daily life, how does um, how does it fluctuate? So what does your best day look like? What does your worst day look like? Um, and how do, you, how do you know when you're having your worst day? And if you don't, then how does your spouse or how do, how do your support people know that you're starting to decline? Um, and so that, again, kind of getting people to think about what's the plan? If we, you do move forward, what's the plan so that if it does become, it starts to become too much, what is that going to look like? Um, we do ask a lot of times if there is a diagnosis, or especially if there's multiple diagnoses, um, we might ask for, uh, um, again, the psychiatrist who's prescribing medication to give a letter or a counselor um, to give a letter and, and really give their, their feedback on how well this person is adjusting to their mental health needs and how well they feel this person could do in managing their own mental health and the mental health of a child. And this is, as you point out, even adopting an infant adds stress into your life, but um, there is significantly more stress that's added, generally speaking, when adopting a child who has experienced trauma, abuse, or neglect. Uh, and uh, and you're right. So if your mental health is, uh, if your mental health issues are destabilized through stress, and that's something to know going in. Um, Let's uh, now let's shift to income and, and financial assets. Uh, let's talk first about adoption, and then I'm going to sh- uh, switch to fostering. Um, let's see, Rebecca, do you need to make a certain amount of money or have a certain amount in savings in order to adopt? And let's talk specifically adopting from uh, foster care or adopting uh, domestic infants. There is not a set number that we expect people to make. Um, what we look at is disposable income. So are you able to, do you make enough to pay your bills and to have enough left over that you're going to be able to pay for the things that we know kids are expensive. And so are you going to have enough left over to pay for all the things that come with having a child? Um, so, again, what we're looking at 
mostly is that disposable income. So what's left after you pay your bills? And do you have enough to meet all the needs plus enough to meet the needs that are going to come up because of children? And, Jeanette, is this any different in international? Is there any type of income requirements or asset savings or whatever that uh, international countries might require that is different from, from what uh, Rebecca just said? It is different. Um, I think I can't quote the numbers off the top of my head, but it's 125% of the national poverty level, and so it's broken down into a family of four needs to make a certain amount. Um, and it's it's not a huge amount, and I think, I think it's like thirty thousand or twenty eight two or something like that um is that is the minimum to be um and that mon- number might be wrong I don't have it in front of me um okay. but, but there is the a minimum. there is a percentage yeah. Yeah, that you have and to then use. yeah and then countries also have requirements um and depending on the country they might require um per each family member to have $10,000 of assets. And so you have to do the math with the family's financials to make sure that they're they're qualified. Um, and it's for those same reasons that Rebecca mentioned. It's, you know, to make sure that the family is not destabilized financially um, and that they have enough money to care for a child. They have medical insurance is usually a part of the financial uh, picture for us to make sure that, you know, if the child needs medical care that it's not going to, um, it's not going to wreck the family. Yeah. And okay. I should mention to that yeah. sorry. Um mm-hmm. I should mention that some matching agencies will require a certain amount in savings, um, but that's not necessarily for the the home study. Um and again that's more so for the actual adoption process, um, rather than a, an ongoing item. So that's something to consider mm-hmm. when you're considering matching agencies, um, kind of what their requirement is. Yeah, uh, and 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 let's also mention that with domestic infant, um, it is primarily an expectant family, expectant parents' choice, and uh, they may have, uh, they may care, they may have a, a preference as to uh, the amount of of income that uh, the the families they're considering to adopt their child, how much how much that has. Now let's talk about fostering. Uh, and we have a question here from someone asking if they could include the foster care uh, subsidy or stipend that foster parents get per child, foster child that's in their home. Can they include that in their income? But let's first talk about is what are the requirements for being the how stable do you how much money do you have to make and how stable how financially stable do you have to be in order to be a, a foster parent, Rebecca? Um, so again, there's not necessarily, I, I don't, to my knowledge, there's not a number, but it goes back to, are you stable? Are you, do you have enough income to pay your bills with disposable to care for a child? Um, so with that, that stipend is not con- is not considered income because that money should be going towards those kiddos that are in your home. Mm-hmm. So we don't want you to rely on that money to pay for your gas bill. Um, you should. We would like for you to have the income to pay for that gas bill without those children, um, because again, that money is f- intended for those children. So that money does not count towards your income, um, and is not counted towards um, what we're looking for. Also, that fluctuates. You might have two children in your home right now, but next month you might not have any. So that number is. We just we don't include that. Um, we want you to be able to support yourself without that additional 
money. Okay. Now, um, we have talked about the criminal background check and about the medical history and about income and assets. Now, let's talk about the uh, uh, autobiographical statements. Uh, Jeanette, uh, people dread this. It's like, oh, gosh, what am I supposed to write about myself? How do you, what are you looking for, and, and how do you as an agency make it easier for families? Uh, we have in our application, there's um, some prompt questions that we ask, but really the autobiography is um, more biography. Our social workers interview the family, and they actually write that based on um, what the, the, you know, asking questions and ha- just having a conversation. It's not, um, it's it's much more kind of an organic conversation about how gotcha. where they grew up, their family of origin, relationships with siblings, uh, discipline that was a part of their household, um, and then a history of like education, uh, work history, marriage, um, and it's just really the story of who they are. Um, and some of those questions are, you know, where where their parents live, and so that's a very easy, you know, they live in this city yeah. in the state. Um, but how's the relationship? How often do you talk? How do they feel about the adoption? Um, are they supportive? Have you told them yet? Um, and then, you know, that kind of those answers prompt kind of the next questions. And so mm-hmm. each of our home studies look ideally very, very different because they're describing a different family and a different person. Um, we have a section for the each parent who's adopting, um, and then we also have a section for um, each of the children and any additional household members that, that are present. Okay, and so you do it as part of the home study process. I mean, I'm sorry, part of the interview process. Obviously, it's a part of the home study process, but it's, uh, in your case, it's part of the interview process. Um, and I think a, a lot of agencies do that. I'll just summarize really quickly and say that there are some agencies, uh, most agencies have prompts. If they require an autobiography, they give you prompts, or they uh, have the husband write the biography about the wife, if this is a married couple, and the wife about the the husband, or if it's the same sex, you know, about your partner or your spouse. So uh, there, it's, um, it is seldom as bad as what you anticipate. <laughs> Um, when I, yeah, when I've interviewed families, it's actually it's most people like to talk about themselves. They like to talk about you know the things that have happened in their lives, and so it, it doesn't seem like a really hard process. Um, uh-huh. But I, I think you know in the application too, we also ask some of those questions about the spouse, how they you know how you met, you know those type of things. But some of those conversations are fun to have. Um, yeah. And especially with you know people are talking about their children, um, you know, or things that they're very proud of in their life. That's that's easy. The harder parts mm-hmm. of the conversation are you know how do you deal with stress and what's been you know some of those those low points in your life. Um, but even that you know when you're talking with a social worker in your household, it's that can be therapeutic in a way too, because mm-hmm. when it's talked yeah. about you know it's you're dealing with it and you're um, you're talking about how you overcame you know, things as well. So the, I wouldn't stress about that part as much. I think most people stress with us about paperwork <laughs> and documents. Well, good reason for that. Uh, uh, Jeanette, how many in-person interviews are usually required in the home study process for international adoption? Um, it, for, it depends on the state. Um, in North Carolina, we do two separate interviews and a part of those on two separate dates. And so you'll do um, if it's a married couple, you'll do two interviews with the couple, and then you'll do an individual interview with each adoptive parent. And then, depending on the ages of the children, um, 
an interview or an observation of, of their kids. And then if they have adult children living outside the home, um, you can do sometimes like a phone call or a Skype um, to talk to their grown children. So it somewhat depends on the state, but generally two to three is the uh, depending four, on your yeah. state. Two to four. Mm-hmm. All right. Rebecca, how does that differ uh, with domestic infant? I assume the number of in-person interviews is a state requirement, so that would differ by state. But how does it, the process of the interview process itself differ, um, the in-person interviews differ for the different types of adoption? Um, I think that a lot of that is similar. It is going to be an organic conversation, like she said, and and really um, just a way to get to know the people that we're writing about. Um, I often tell people, especially because we don't do the matching for domestic infant adoption, we so we're doing the home study. So I tell them, like, the people that are reading this don't get to meet you sometimes. So I everything that I'm asking you is my way of being able to talk about you and know you when I do so. Um, And so it really is just a conversation um, about their whole life. Uh, We use SAFE, which is a very structured format. So part of our paperwork is going to include uh, some questionnaires. Um, And then from those questionnaires, that just gives us some talking points and some things that we um, can see that, hey, we need, to, we need to talk about this or I have questions about that. Um, but so they aren't always required to write out answers, but they will have to do some questionnaires with that. And then we, with SAFE, we in Indiana, I should say, in Indiana we're required to do SAFE, um, and that requires three interviews. Um, sometimes we'll do a fourth, um, and sometimes we'll do, the, we'll do an interview with the kids on a separate date. Sometimes we'll do that one of the times that we're at the home, but um, but it does require three. So we're, we're really spending significant time with the family getting to know them. Okay, we got a question, and, and actually I was thankful we did get this question because we, we do hear people wondering about this. She asks, we are adopting a baby. I have been told that we will be asked about what we believe about spanking. We were both spanked and believe it has a role in discipline, but I don't want to say it if it will mean we won't get a good home study. All right, let's talk uh, about that, uh, the, the role of corporal punishment, because I think that uh, or the role of how discipline and how you discipline is, is a pretty standard question, I think, that is asked in, in the interview process in, in most home studies. Rebecca? Uh, if you uh, believe in corporal punishment, uh, is that an automatic preclusion to being able to adopt? And, and let's divide by type of adoption or fostering that we're talking about. Let's start with domestic infant, then let's talk about adopting or fostering from foster care. Um, so for infant adoption, um, it does not necessarily rule you out. Um, it is a conversation that we're going to have. We're going to have a conversation about um, what does that look like, um, and wh- why do you th- why do you agree with it? Why do you think it it works? Um, and and again, what other things are you using? Is that the only thing you're using, or is when are you using it? How do you decide? Um, we're really going to dive into it um, for infant adoption, and then that will just be included in your home study. We will, we might do some education on some other types of um, discipline, but at, at the end of the day, it's 
the family's choice. And I would rather them be honest and say this is something that we plan to do and than to not say so um, and then do it anyway so that we can have that conversation and we can talk about mm-hmm. um, what are, what are some, al- uh, some alternatives, when when would this be appropriate, when, when isn't it? Um, but again, for that infant domestic adoption, it will just be included as part of the information. And then that's something that the matching agency may have requirements. Um, and as you said earlier, the birth parent really ultimately gets to decide what they feel comfortable with. And so that's something that the birth parent would then potentially get to decide if they feel comfortable with that. Yeah, in this case it would be the expectant parent, but yeah. Um, Correct, yeah. Right, yeah, okay, gotcha. Now go ahead and move on to uh, becoming a foster parent or adopting from foster care. Yes, so it is the state's policy that there will be no physical discipline. So um, for fostering, there is, you're not allowed to use spanking or any kind of corporal punishment. And the same goes for adopting from foster care. We're really going to have that conversation. Um, and part of, we're going to have the conversation in regards to um, the trauma that happens to our kiddos. And so not only do we not want you to use spanking and corporal punishment on the kiddos with trauma, but we don't want you to use it on other children in the home where these kiddos with trauma are going to see that. And we're really going to have an education piece, but it is the policy of the state that they that there will be no corporal punishment. Okay. Jeanette, for international, uh, how does uh, corporal punishment factor into the uh, home study process and your uh, qualifications to adopt? Um, I think it really is an educational conversation with pre-adoptive parents about what discipline looks like and how um, what your goals are. Um, one of the things that you want is attachment and what things prevent attachment. Um, So for international adoption, I would say most agencies have a very strict policy, no corporal punishment. Um, These kids have experienced things that we don't know, um, and sometimes they're not going to remember because they were so young, and that, that does the opposite. You're pushing them away from you. Um, but we also have that same conversation around timeouts. Um, you know, rather than put a child in a room by themselves and triggering all of those traumas, it's best to sit next to the child, and, you know, we call it a time in. And parents really need to learn what discipline will look like for each individual child, um, just like they would with their own biological children. Each kid is different um, and has different temperaments, um, and you really want to parent each child with them in mind. And so just because, you know, a parent might have been spanked and that worked for them, it might not work for the child that they want to adopt. And so we really, you know, it's it's all of those educational pieces, but for international adoption, I would say most agencies have a a, a policy with, you know, lots of reasons why, that no corporal punishment is allowed. Gotcha. All right. Uh, Jeanette, you had already mentioned that as part of the interview process, children in the home, if they're uh, old enough to talk, will be interviewed. And that causes a lot of parents concern um, for a couple of reasons. One, they're afraid it might be stressful for their children. Uh, Two, they may not have told their children because they're waiting until they know more because they know that their child uh, that's too long to wait, too, too much anticipation in the future, and they want to wait till it's closer to the time. Or they're worried because they're, they have told their kids, and they, the kids have mixed emotions or don't want another sibling, and, 
and they're worried that their child may, they don't believe that that's a child's decision, and they're uh, not, they, they don't want the child to be interviewed or they're concerned about what the child might say in the interview. So how how do you, uh, how do you handle situations like that where either the child is, is against it or the child doesn't know about it uh, uh, and you're not wanting to be, you don't want to cause stress to the child? Um, I would say that it starts with a conversation with the parents and to say that, you know, I'll interview the children, um, you know, if they're over six years old or 10 years old, whatever the state requirement is, um, and just maybe let the parents know what type of questions you'll be asking. Um, in our interviews, it's, you know, we ask about their favorite subjects in school and their friends and um, just get to know them a little bit as part of the household. Um, but then we also have a, a time when the kids can ask any questions. Um, and sometimes, you know, they might have questions that they've already asked their parents or sometimes, you know, they might say, you know, I'm, I don't want to share my room, <laughs> you know, something. Yeah, yeah. And you can help then with the family um, do that. In regards to if they haven't been told yet, usually um, by the time you're doing the home study, um, kids know that maybe in a, that they've, they've talked about adoption, they've talked about a sibling. Uh, you don't have to use specifics. You don't have to say, you know, where the parents are in the, in the process if the kids don't know. Um, but just asking general questions about, um, you know, how they feel about another sibling. And, again, it's part of that, that counseling piece with the family. You're, you're there for each member. Um, I usually leave conversations with kids or, or teenagers saying, you can call any time. If, if you think of something later and you want to talk, you ask your mom for my number and you can call me. Um, and I look forward to seeing you again when I come back, you know, next Saturday. Or, you know, you're building rapport not just with the parents but also with the kids whether they're teenagers or, or younger, so that, you know, they can they can also be provided with education about what changes are about to happen in their family. And I think it's normal for kids to, to have mixed emotions, um, you know, even if it was a, another birth child coming into the family. Yeah, not every yeah. older sibling wants the baby. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. so it's, it's normal. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Rebecca, any differences with uh, domestic infant or with... Uh, adopting from foster care or becoming a foster parent? I think that she nailed it. Um, it. It really is just about getting to know those kids and how they fit in the family and how they feel about their family. Um, and I think they offer a unique perspective about their family. And so a lot of times we'll talk about, what do you really like about mom? What do you really like about dad? Um, and then we can kind of ask, who does the discipline? Who does? And and they just have a different perspective that's nice to be able to see and add. Um, I think that a lot of parents are really worried about if their child is apathetic um, about having a new sibling. And but mm-hmm. as Jeanette said, we I expect that especially at certain at different ages. I feel like that's age appropriate, um, and we're we're going to talk through that, and that's okay. But it really is their chance to ask questions as well. Um, Arlita James, who wrote a book about brothers and sisters and adoption, um, spoke once, and she was talking about that we that other siblings in the home are often the least prepared for an adoption, and I think that's mm-hmm. so true. So we don't they don't go through classes, they don't go through training um, most of the time, and so it's really 
this is our opportunity to give them some education and, and, and give them some insight into, hey, like, how would you feel if the other kid didn't want to play with you? You're expecting this really outgoing kid that wants to play all these games with you, but what if they're really shy? How would you feel about that? Because you have mm-hmm. this picture in your head. And so it, it really is, that's our chance to do that because there's not always a space to do that in, in the way that there is for the parents in formal trainings and those kinds of things. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and actually we have a course, I believe, with our lady, Jane. Um, brothers, she's the author of Brothers and Sisters in Adoption. And we, we also have other courses on preparing children for the adoption and preparing children already in the home for fostering. And I do think uh, that that is often something that we overlook uh, as parents. And, yes, we accept that adoption and fostering is going to change our lives significantly, uh, but we're really changing our whole families and our whole family structure and our family dynamics, and we're changing the lives of our children. So um, viewing the home study process as a way of letting your child share some of their feelings and also preparing and educating them. Um, let me just throw one more thing out there. We do have on the creatingafamily.org website uh, under both uh, fostering and foster care and adoption, we have suggested books and we have reviews and we break them out by age of the child, and they can be used both with adopted kids and foster kids, but also with children. We have some that are directly aimed at children already in the home who will be getting a new sibling. Uh, so let me throw that out. Okay, now, uh, one of the, uh, uh, the the biggest question of all, uh, and this comes down to uh, the home visit itself. Uh, we've talked about the type of documents we need, but part of this is also, one of the other is to evaluate the uh, prospective family's home. And so, you know, all right, let's be honest, how clean uh, does our home need to be, and are you going to be looking really hard at what the crevices uh, of my house look like? And heaven forbid, if you were to look under any bed in my house, you would be swarmed by dust bunnies. So, do I need to do a really thorough cleaning to get prepared for this? Uh, let me see. I'll ask that to you, Jeanette. It kind of makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> I've seen a variety of houses. Um, you know, one of the things that I do that helps, if I'm stressed out, if I clean or organize something, that helps me. The home study process is stressful. You're about to have a social worker come into your home and interview you about a medical, family, financial. It's really stressful. So if it yeah, you're asking me personal questions, right? And and you don't know me, and I don't know you. And if it makes you feel better to do a deep clean of your house, then you will be more calm and relaxed in the visit. If, so that if that was happening in my house, yeah, right. I don't want to do and that. So. <laughs> if you don't want to do that or, you know, you have other things that you are more important than that, the social worker really is looking at space. What is what What room is set aside for the adoptive child or rooms? Are there smoke detectors in the right places? Do you have a fire extinguisher? Are there medications? Where are they stored? Is there a firearm in the house? How is it stored safely? Um, do you have a pool? It's it's those type of state safety requirements that the, the social worker is just verifying. The cleanliness of your home, you know, I would put my best foot forward if the social worker yeah. was showing up on my yeah. doorstep and I knew it. But, you know, at the same time, if you have children and pets and other things, your home is just who you are. And so don't 
worry about overdoing it as far as the cleanliness of the house. We do two visits, and I always make sure that on the first visit I do the home inspection because I figure that if they have done that type of cleaning, that's the day I need to see it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so that they can live comfortably over the next week. But, yeah. you know, it's not it's not a cleaning test. and Or, you know, is your house beautiful? It's it's the people who make up the home that we're curious about. And does, this, and does the home, the physical home, meet the requirements for the number of children? And if they have, if they're having these type of special needs, how is it set up to make sure that they live comfortably in this house? And as far as number of bedrooms for international adoption, is there a specification? Uh, do many countries have specifications as to the what the physical space needs to look like for the child? No, it's also based on states. So you've got state requirements um, and then country requirements, and we usually write um, something very kind of standard, the measurements, the actual dimensions of the room, um, that it has space, it has a window, it has a closet, room for personal belongings. Um, and, you know, most people don't decorate the room until they know the age, the gender, the interests mm-hmm. of the child. And mm-hmm. so most rooms, you know, if it's a guest room, it's not set up yet. Um, mm-hmm. And they will decorate it, you know, when they know the kid's favorite color or when they, you know, when they get home and they're closer to doing that. Okay. Now, Rebecca, how does that differ for let's do domestic infant? How does um, that differ for domestic infant? Does your nursery have to be set up? Um, are there specific size requirements? How does that work? For domestic infant, there um, the nursery does not necessarily need to be set up, but then we need to see that you have the income available to, if you need to get a crib, that you have the income to get a crib or a, the, a plan for how you're going to get a crib. Um, so we want to see those things. We want to see that you, but also we want to know that you, are prepared um, for when that child is going to come. But usually there's some time um, there. So if you don't have those things in place yet, we want to we want to make sure that you have the means and a, or, and or a plan to do so. Um, now, as with foster care, it's a little different, isn't it? I mean, there's correct. usually very specific requirements, and that does differ by state. So let's talk yes. about foster care now. So for foster care, there is a space requirement. Um, They don't necessarily have to have their own room, but they do have to have 50 square feet per foster child, Um, and they will measure that. And then, um, and also there's requirements as far as um, same-gender children sharing a room. There's an age, um, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but they, at a certain age, they can't share a room with a child of a different gender. There are also, again, there's a lot more requirements in fostering. There's a lot more requirements um, for babies. So they are not allowed to sleep in a pack-and-play or co-sleep. They have to have a crib. Um, They can be in the parent's bedroom only until um, they're one-year-old, and they have to have a crib in in the parent's bedroom if they're going to be in there. Um, And any child under two in foster care must have a crib. Um, so after two, you can look at potentially a toddler bed, but under two, they they need to have a crib. So all that being said, when we're doing the foster care home study, it really depends on what you're saying you're open to. But you need to have some you need to have a bed for a child because we know with foster care, you could have that placement in two days after you get approved. So that's not really a lot of time to get 
things set up. So you really need to have things set up more quickly. Um, but we, under, we understand, too, that you're if you're saying you're open to any child of any age, that bed is going to look different. Um, so we want you to have a bed, um, but you also need to have the means to get a different bed or a plan to get a different bed if you have, a, for instance, a younger child and now need a crib. Um, so, okay. And that kind of looks different to you. If, if your age range is zero to five, then the state may require that you have a crib um, for those under two placements that you might have. Um, but again, the biggest thing is knowing that you have those available. Also with foster care, no foster, at least in Indiana, no foster child can have a bedroom in a basement. So even if it has a window and a second exit, it doesn't matter. They cannot have a, a bedroom in a basement in Indiana. But your bio kids or the parents can if there are two exits. So gotcha. all bedrooms have to have two exits. Um, so that's kind of some differences with foster care. There, it is more strict, and there, and you need to have those things set up um, during that you know, home study. And the bottom line is, ask your for any type of adoption or fostering home study. Ask Correct. your agency in advance for a specific list of what they're going to be looking for. How many uh, smoke detectors and where do they have to be located? Carbon monoxide detectors. Uh, if you live where there is, if you have uh, water coming from a well, do you have to have the water having been tested? And if so, uh, how soon does the test, how, how current does the test have to be? So ask your uh, agency uh, in advance. Uh, for exactly what the requirements are, and if you've got a problem with one of them, then talk with your social worker and say, okay, we don't have this, but how can we work around? Well, the parents can move to the basement bedroom and blah, blah, blah. So you can work around it. A lot of the things you can work around. Now, uh, Jeanette, do you have to own your own home, um, or can you be in an apartment, or can you be in a rented home and and still adopt internationally? Uh, you can absolutely be in a rented home. Um, or, you know, we have a lot of military families in North Carolina, um, and so a lease department is fine. We always ask for, as part of the financial piece, a copy of either the mortgage or the lease. Gotcha. And, uh, Rebecca, for domestic infant or adopting from foster care or fostering, do you need to own your own home, or can you be in an apartment or a rented home? You can absolutely be in an apartment or rented home, as okay. long as you can, again, stability. Uh, many of us have pets, and we worry uh, that uh, how our pets are going to be evaluated. I have some very funny stories from friends who have uh, Benadryl, <laughs> given their dog Benadryl <laughs> before a uh, social work visit, with the approval, I will add, of their um, of their vet. But nonetheless, uh, it was a very sweet dog, but they were worried that the dog would be a little enthusiastic. Um, so let's talk about pets. Rebecca, how do pets play into the home visit, and, and what are you looking for, and what type of documents do the pet owners uh, have to provide? We do ask that pet owners provide vaccination records for their pets. Um, and what we're looking for in that interview, we want to see what your life is like and what it's going to be like for a child coming into your home. So as much as, yes, it may make you feel better to have for your dog to have Benadryl, we would actually like to see how does your dog interact with strangers? 
how does your dog, um, does your dog calm down after a few minutes or is your dog hyper all the time? Because, again, we're looking at appropriate matches as much as we are looking at you. We want to know, hey, if there's a kid that really is anxious around a dog that's going to move a lot, we want to know if that is your home. Um, Mm -hmm. Or if your dog is really calm and relaxed, that might be a really good fit for a different kiddo. So, um, yeah, we we want to see how your animals interact. So letting them it's not be who they are. Well, it's not then a, a good or a bad thing per se. It's that you right. want to be able to make certain that the, the child that's placed in that home, if the child is terrified of dogs and you have a, let's just use the euphemism, an enthusiastic liquor who just adores everyone but mm-hmm. might overwhelm a child who is, is quite hesitant. Um, are there specific breeds that are a problem with adoption, either domestic infant or uh, adopting from foster care or, or becoming a foster parent, Rebecca? Not to my knowledge. And, again, I think it goes back to safety and stability. So if if your dog is safe, then that's the the biggest concern that we have is safety. Okay. And, Jeanette, anything different that you would add that would apply to international adoption with coming to pets? Um, it's basically the same. There's no um, no dogs are ruled out because of their breed. I think we've all met the really mean little tiny dog. Um, <laughs> but, you know, a very cute story from a family that I interviewed is they have a cat that, you know, it's a nice cat, but he's, you know, independent. And the little boy, I asked him, you know, does the cat like you? And he said, sometimes. And the mom looked a little horrified, and she's like, be honest. And I said, honestly, who's stronger, you or the cat? And the little boy said, the cat. (laughs) And, I mean, he was like five. But it was a a lovely family, and, you know, the pet was well cared for and, you know, not aggressive. But, you know, they're they're animals, and they're part of our lives, and some – it's based on state, whether they require um, a rabies vaccination or other type of records. And that would go for most pets. Some people also have chickens and, you know, a lot of cats or dogs or wherever they live. Um, but you're really just judging, you know, how is this a safe and suitable place for this child? And a lot of times, you know, we talk about the adoptive parents, but really, like at our agency, our clients are the children that we're placing. And so we want to make sure that our clients are served, and those are the kids. So if the kid is going to be in a place where it's, you know, loved and cared for and the pets are, you know, aggressive, I mean, that you need to address that. So um, most of the time I've never seen an issue with a pet, but, you know, I wouldn't recommend someone give their dog Benadryl before you show up because then you don't get a good view of what the family looks like. Yeah, and that's, well, that's true as well. Um, or if you have a dog who is, <clears throat> you do think is, has shown aggression, you need to be prepared before you bring a child into that home uh, of how you're going to handle that and what you're going to do and how you're going to protect the child and how you're going to protect the animal because ultimately you don't want your animal to hurt some uh, a child because that's going to impact the, the animal's life from from there on. All right. Now we're going to move to a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is uh, uh, training, uh, adoption and foster care training. Um, obviously, uh, creating a family is, is a nonprofit that's devoted to uh, training and education and support for adoptive and, um, and foster parents. So I think we often overlook that part of the home study process is to help 
train, educate, and support uh, pre-adoptive parents and pre-foster parents. Um, we won't spend a lot of time on it because the, the truth is the training requirements are generally specified and required either um, in international by the country <clears throat> or by the U.S. government requires uh, uh, a certain set number of hours or by the agency. And certain agencies require more, um, which I'm always happy to, to hear because I think the more training is the better. So as a family, it's not something that you really have a lot of choice on. It's it's already required. And the same with domestic uh, and the same with either becoming a foster parent or adopting from foster care. The pre-type of training is a, is a requirement and, and it's a part of the process that, uh, but I want people to know about it, and it's, it's something to embrace and, and look forward to because it will help you in the parenting of the children you already have. It will help you in parenting these new children. It will help you as a family uh, across the board. Uh, now I'll get off my soapbox. Um, Jeanette, any other thing you want to add specific to the training aspect of the home study process? I think it's one of the most important, and it's something that we recommend the families do before the social worker comes um, because the trainings, we report about it in the home study. You have to do a minimum uh, for the U.S. government of 10 hours. Hopscotch requires 35 for our placing clients um, because it's so important. You don't. You want to be prepared. You want to um, do everything you can, and so some of the education is, you know, very specific courses, coping with grief and loss or adopting an older child or what trauma looks like in older children. But mm-hmm. then other things to be prepared that we include would be locating a pediatrician, that ha- locating, you know, early childhood intervention programs. Um, we have some children's books about adoption that we have families read. Um, meet with another adoptive family. Uh, join a support group, those type of things. Um, mm-hmm. And then we also, in the first interview, talk about post-adoption starts with the home study, locating those services. Um, you know, you, you have that kind of time at the then, you know, especially during all the waiting, start mm-hmm. researching preschools or, you know, ESL programs or what, what you know, you might need in your community. If you're adopting from another country, um, like Guyana, where's the Guyanese community for you? You know, do mm-hmm. all of that preparation ahead of time. And when you're talking with the social worker when they're there, that's the best time to ask questions. That's the best time to go over the classes, to talk about what you learned about discipline or, you know, when you read this book, this stood out. Those those are all things that we talk about in the home study. And so I would say that's one of the best ways to get prepared for the interviews is to do your education before the social worker comes. Rebecca, any thoughts on training and education? Let's start with domestic infants. There seems to be more variety as to what is required by agencies, quite frankly, um, with domestic infant adoption than any other type of adoption. And some, honestly, some agencies don't require any, and some states don't require any, and other states and agencies do. But any thoughts on uh, education for pre-adoptive parents uh, with domestic infant adoption? For domestic infant, it is what you said. There's not always a requirement, um, sometimes none at all. And so I think it really is up to the parents to seek that out, prospective parents, I should say, to seek that out. Um, And I know that that adds another thing to the list of things to do beforehand. But as Jeanette said, now is when you have time. So now Mm -hmm. is when you can really build that knowledge base um, something that I talk to parents about, again, because we use that safe format that's very structured, one of the things they're filling out is a compatibility inventory. 
And so I tell them, if you're going to say yes to something, that you're open to something, then I want you to think about what resources you have for that and how you plan to address it. And if you don't know how you would address it, then that's where you need to seek out that training now. Um, Because if you're saying yes to something, then you should have some idea of um, what you're saying yes to and how you're going to move forward with that um, if something should arise. You're never going to have the answer to every situation, but having a feeling that you have some kind of basis, some kind of foundation to start on is going to help you feel more calm when those things arise. Um, So in general, for domestic infant, it's a lot of parents seeking out that information and really being self-motivated. And with foster care, the the pre-service is very specified. The pre-service training is very specified, um, usually by the state. So, for a either when you're adopting or uh, fostering, so you basically just need to do what the state and your agency is telling you. Anything different from that, uh, Rebecca? No. Again, as you said, the pre-service especially is very scripted. Um, yeah. Most of the time, that's pretty set. Yeah, and it's. Different from post uh, uh, or in service uh, uh, with foster parents or post adoption, but the pre services, which is a part of the home study process, is, are, are, are runs uh, simultaneously with the home study process, is, is usually specified. All right, last question How much do home studies cost? Uh, Rebecca, let's start with you, and you can give us a range. Um, and if there's a difference in cost, uh, then uh, depending on the type of adoption, uh, talk about it. Let's start with domestic infant. How much? Uh, it, what's the range that parents would normally expect to pay for a domestic infant home study? So for domestic infant, and again, as you said, it's probably a range depending on where you're at. Um, sure. But I would, for what I know, is Indiana, and I would say in Indiana the range um, is somewhere from 1200 to 2000 um, and there's a couple things that you might pay in addition to that, such as fingerprints, again, if you're going to see a doctor, those kinds of things. But generally speaking, for the home study piece itself, you're looking at 1200 to 2000 um, And that does about- change if – oh, sorry, I was going to say, that does change just a little bit if depending on – um, so if it is a relative placement, um, then that might look – that might be less – um, if it definitely step parent, we charge a lot less for step parent adoptions um, or kinship placements. Again, that aren't okay. necessarily relative, but and then for right. foster care, typically the family is not paying for the home study for foster care. Um, mm-hmm. They may pay for pieces of the home study. So again, they may pay for their fingerprints. They may pay for some things like that, but they're not paying as a whole. They're not paying for the home study typically. Okay. And, Jeanette, what about with international? Um, and, and go ahead and give us a range because I think it does depend um, on where in the U.S. you are and, and what country probably uh, yeah. as well. Um, it usually depends on the state and the agency. And some families, you know, I've heard $6,000 for some agencies. Um, in North Carolina, yeah, <laughs> in North Carolina, Hopscotch a Home Study is $1,400. And, um, you know, then if – a clearance costs money from a certain state. That would be, you know, the family's responsibility. They're usually like fifteen dollars. Um, and in New York, where we're authorized to do home studies, it's seventeen hundred dollars. And again, you know, that's it, it varies by agency. 
Um, and so if that's a, a, a concern, mm-hmm. you know, families sometimes, you know, call multiple agencies and, and see what's included and what's not. But yeah. it is important to ask, you know, what that covers. So in addition to the, the home study fee, you'd also um, – mileage is usually not included. Um, a lot of agencies like ours deduct a certain number of miles and then over and above that, you know, it's the IRS rate for mileage or whatever. Um, but I think generally, you know, Sometimes agencies charge for an expedited home study, um, and that sometimes can be a misnomer for families because you can't expedite clearances. And so a lot of times um, expedited doesn't necessarily mean better uh, or faster. Um, or faster. It's just a, yeah. Um, and usually, like I know with our clients, if there's if there's some urgent need, then it's urgent for us too. And so, you know, we always say all all home studies are expedited because that's just the best practice. Um, mm-hmm. But generally, cost-wise, um, I would say around $2,000, $3,000, depending on where you live in the U.S. Total. And, and the other thing to ask about, some agencies have the parents pay for their own training requirements and other agencies include that uh, as part of the home study. So it's worth asking that as well. So it's kind of making sure you're doing an um, apples-to-apples type of comparison, I think, is, is useful. Well, thank you so much, uh, b- both of you, for being here today to talk with us about the adoption and foster care home study. We've been talking with uh, Rebecca Hill as well as Jeanette Quick um, let me remind you that Creating a Family has courses, other courses, on much of the topics we have been talking about. Uh, and we also have uh, other resources on our website, our Adoption A to Z Resource Guide and our Foster Care A to Z Resource Guide that will have information uh, that would be relevant for, for uh, those people who are interested in this topic. Let me also pause now to say thank you to uh, another one of our sponsors whose generosity and support of creating a family in general allows us to bring you this show. It is Adoptions by Shepherd Care. They are a nonprofit adoption agency founded in 1980, providing domestic infant adoption, international adoption from Columbia, and domestic and Hague-approved international home studies. For those people who would are interested, I, they will want more information uh, from both Rebecca and Jeanette uh, and about their agencies. You can go to their websites, Rebecca Hill's website. She is with Safi, and the website is Safi, S-A-F-Y, dot com. And for those who want more information about Hopscotch or Jeanette, you can go to their, web, Scott, their website, which is Hopscotch Adoptions, that's with an S, HopscotchAdoptions.org. Thank you so much for listening today, and I will see you next week. I'm here with Jennifer Taniguchi, a senior at Creighton University's Hyder College of Business. I hear you're from Hawaii. Tell us why you chose Creighton for your undergraduate education and what internships you've completed as a student at Creighton. I chose Creighton University's Hyder College of Business because ultimately they had numerous internship opportunities. So far, I had three internships, one back home at Bank of Hawaii, another at Union Pacific Railroad, which is a Fortune 500 company, and finally one at a big four accounting firm, Deloitte. Learn more about all of the university's academic programs at Creighton.edu. Everything you're hearing is from the Home Depot, from the baseboards and nails, to these throw pillows, even those super soft sheets. Because now at the Home Depot, you can get everything for your bedroom, from wooden nightstands to modern benches. 
Save up to 25% on select bedroom furniture, plus free and flexible delivery and easy in-store returns. Shop decor now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Valid on select items online only. Free delivery on select items, $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information.